I think uh, there's a level of self-assurance that comes with Hexad that as an attachment child can be very jarring. I think also the six at the end of the day is, is terrified. We are terrified that we are the cause of our own suffering. Nancy just doesn't stop doing things. Courtney just doesn't stop thinking. Guys, just shut up. Just take a nap. <laughs> You'll feel better in the morning. <laughs> the big hormone enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovic, uh, sexual self-pres, more than five wing, four or five eight trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-pres, sexual, nine with one, nine, seven, four, trifix. What up, it's Emika, I'm an eight wing seven, sexual self-pres, with eight, five, four, fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy, I am a self-pres, social, three, wing four, with a three, six, nine, trifix. If you like our podcast, guys, make sure you go like and subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. And if you really like us, you should definitely leave us a review. I hate introing the pod. So welcome to the podcast. This is a Nancy-centric podcast like all of you asked for, and I will hate every minute of it. So you're welcome. We have our lovely guests, uh, Courtney and Alexandra, and we are going to do a Bermuda-centric podcast. Super excited about that. So you can listen to this while you're falling asleep. It'll be nice and relaxing for you. <laughs> um, make sure you go buy John's book. It's awesome. And he will appreciate it if you buy it. And you will appreciate it if you buy it. Um, mm-hmm. And also David's handbook is out. And also the Dark Arts Academy is out. So if you want to be a wizard, then you should go there. <laughs> That's all the plugs I'm going to do. <laughs> So yeah, did you guys get the questions that Emika sent? They aren't really exactly what I was planning on talking about. So now I'm a bit frazzled. So you know, I just- kind of figure we can just kind of wing it. It sounds like Emika's just wanting attachment circus. Right. Which we're all on here. So he'll get yeah. attachment circus no matter what. <laughs> Yeah, I know that you you wanted to have a focus on religion. I think maybe what if we started with some of his questions just to kind of intro it? Because I think naturally a conversation can go into how religion has shaped our view or how attachment happens in a sort of like religious atmosphere and how it's, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, and he did make a point, or John made, someone made a point that religion is just a, another way that attachment shows up. He made the point that attachment shows up through religion just like it would in any relationship, but it's just another way to attach. So speaking Mm -hmm. about attachment would be speaking about religion in a sense anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. So the first question that Emika asked was, are there any new attachments to disconnect insights from the perspective of your type? For example, in your relationships, in what ways have you caught yourself creating disconnect in your relationships that ensures you're not fully seen or supported? So I think Courtney just makes sure that her sound quality is constantly terrible and then she can feel not supported. And (laughs) that's exactly right. (laughs) 
Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so who, wants to, who wants to lead this? Well, I'll start you- the first time that we spoke about this specific question. One of the things that I think all three of us agreed upon is that by making a commitment to never fully reveal ourselves in some way, we ensure that we're not fully seen or supported. And that's part of the the vicious, virtuous cycle of attachment, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Is I can't dare to reveal myself because I may risk not feeling attached to you. Um, yet the fact that I never trust that I can fully see or reveal myself to you means that we're actually, I don't actually trust that we're fully attached. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then you can constantly go back and keep reattaching in a way that satisfies that satisfies in quotes that attachment bullshit yeah it just keeps your sort of ego fixation going or the ego project going in a way so how does that show up for you guys it is kind of a hard topic to to um, dive right into approach yeah yeah or to even see it's so subtle okay so one way that i do it that i'm sure john uh, loves and holds close to his heart, <laughs> it, you know, due to comfort of clarity is one of the things I found myself doing is I will just like, how do I say, I was going to say rapid fire questions, but it's not exactly <laughs> rapid, but I will ask <laughs> him for his location over and over and over. Like, okay, if I'm being honest. Let's, I can't even think of an example, but let's say that like, I don't like how I look today. So instead of just saying, I don't like how I look today, I will try to get, basically, I'll try to get him to say that he doesn't like how I look so that I can use that as like, as like a direction that I need to like fix myself, you know, like I I need to get him to admit that, uh, you know, I wish you would just like change your shirt or something like that. And then I'll go change my shirt. Easy. Yes. And then I can confirm that I, how I look is now correct. Because yes, you corrected exactly. it. Exactly. Because yeah, no, it's not no. enough for me to not like how I look. Because if I, you know, it's almost like if I don't like how I look, then who cares? I need someone else to not like how I look so that I can do something about it. Because, I mean, what better motivation? Well, and also for me, it's like, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to right. fix it in my head. Right. Mm-hmm. I can feel like something's off, but there's no fixing it until someone tells me what's off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I guess what I hear both of you, I guess what I hear both of you saying too, is that there's an external voice that needs to deter, even if you feel in yourself, a small piece that's like, oh, something's off. It still needs to be validated by an external voice. Mm -hmm. And almost like the lack of habit of sort of trusting that that's the, something's off in what I'm wearing. What should I change about it? It's like, we lack practice in sort of really drilling down in that. And so it's, it's like then, even that initial, I don't, something's off here. Help me specify by getting mm-hmm. like outside feedback. Like help me narrow it down this vague mm-hmm. sort of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's um kind of hammered into my brain with like, um, I base a lot of my current decisions off of what's happened in the past. So it's like before, if I've gone off of my own, like, oh, I want to fix this and I think it's this. So therefore I'm going to do that. 
later on, I find out that that decision was wrong. And I'm like, see, this mm. is what happens. This is what happens when I listen to myself. And then in the mm. future, I go, Mm-mm, that's not a good decision because last time, last yeah. time that was a mistake. Yeah. That's that really interesting spot on for me. No, because I was going to say what for me, where I, some of that checking with the other person is right. The way that I've set it up is like, I can listen to my voice and risk that you won't support me or you won't, I, I alienate you or some version. I, I lose attachment to you. If I dare to sort of stand for what I want, we can use clothes as a stupid example, but, but it applies elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's almost by me sort of checking in. It's like, I'm trying to get you to collude and like be part of it. like take you along with me. So that I don't have to almost risk. like create a shared experience or yeah, exactly. You're with me, right? Like you agree this clothes, this is shit. Like, what should I do differently? Like, can I get you sort of on my team in mm-hmm. this like project of what I'm <laughs> trying to fix here so that then I don't, I don't have to choose. I don't even have to, mm. I'm not risking the choice between being connected to you and sort of doing my own thing. Does it give you uh sometimes it gives me someone else to blame. Mm-hmm. Does it ever do that for you? It does for me. It takes it. I mean, it completely shifts the blame. If somebody leads me astray, then I can say, you know, my slate is still clean. Mm -hmm. But if I'm so similar, this is kind of mirroring what you were saying um, to use just like the silly example of clothes. The reason I need guidance on what I'm going to do next is because what if I choose something that's I feel good in, but I look objectively stupid in. Right. And then and then it's like a double whammy. I look stupid, but I also feel stupid because it was my choice. Right. Right. Yeah. And then to go even more meta with it is like, I now feel dumb. I now feel even dumber because people have seen that I feel good in this dumb choice. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like I have, um, I have dated people in the past where like, I didn't really listen to other people's opinions about them. And then like, I look back and I'm like, that was a big mistake. And then Mm -hmm. they met all of my friends circle. And as a three, right. That's like, didn't like that. How you made made me look, (laughs) how, how you made my, made my image look in those moments. And I didn't listen to the people around me or they didn't tell me, which I hate even more. They were like, oh, I knew the whole time. And I'm like, so you're just thinking this about me in the back of your head and you're not bothering to voice it. And that, of course, adds to a layer of paranoia to like, see, this is what's really going on in people's heads all the time. They're just constantly thinking about you. And it's like, no, no (laughs) one's thinking about you ever. No one gives a shit. (laughs) I mean, that's really interesting to me because I, I do think there is a slight difference where for me, it does feel like it's very support based. Like not so much like, do I care what you think? Or like, are you thinking something, but more like what, what will it cost me if we dare to think differently? Hmm. Can you go into that more? Because I'm, I do, I'll just preface it by saying like, sometimes I do see a similarity between three and nine. And I feel like six is a little bit on the outskirts of that because it feels like six will do, how do I say this? It feels like nine and three are a bit more elusive and that we're almost not going to show our location unless we know what the right answer is. And six will show you both of their options, but not commit to something, but want you to be along the ride for like the yes and the no so that we can get to the yes together. Am I understanding that correctly? Does that resonate at all? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Because like personally, I'll be really 
Like, you're not going to get anything from me until I get some hint of like, this is the direction to take. And then I will just act like that's been my choice the whole time. No, that's not really how I, that's, yeah, that does, that's not quite how I think about it for myself. It's more like I'm trying things on with you, Mm, floating things. And some of that ping pong quality is, it's like me kind of like asking you to be part of my mind Mm. as I'm floating through, as I'm bouncing back and forth between options. It's like, I need a stabilizing force to help Mm. me as I'm ping ponging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nancy, how do you, how do you resonate with that? Cause there's something to note that all three of us have six and all three of us have three. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm somewhere in between. Um, sometimes I want someone to like ping pong off of, and sometimes I am not going to show you anything until you tell me what the right answer is. And I'll be that both resonate for Mm. me. It just, it's almost like it depends on the person in front of me and what they enjoy more. (laughs) That's very three. (laughs) It's very three. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very funny. I experienced the ping pong myself, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to show that. That's going to be hidden. So that is my relationship to six is that I do have that ping pong, but it's not forward. And then what I relate to with three is that I am looking for that sort of correct answer, but I'm absolutely not assertive about it at all. I'm not like, how do I say this? Like my understanding of three is that three will take action towards what you think is, how do I, did I just mess that up? Mm. Yeah. Three will take action. Three will like feel into you. Oh, this is what you want. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to make it seem like it was my choice the whole time. And that you're surprised. You're like pleasantly surprised by like, wow, she's everything I want her to be. Right. I intuited Um, this. Yes. yes. But you think it's just part of me. Yeah, exactly. Whereas me as a nine, I am basically waiting for you to tell me somehow. And that you're going to know that you're, (laughs) you're kind of going to know that you're telling me. And that I'm going along with your direction. Does that make any sense? No, that makes perfect sense. But that's what I appreciate about nines. And I could never, ever be with a three personally. Because <laughs> I just both of us would constantly be intuiting into each other's bullshit. And it would just be like this bullshit cycle all the way down to like where we're just no one. But mm. nines, I feel like are a bit easier to like know the game that they're playing. Yeah, like I'm, I'm waiting for the assertive action and then I will just flow along with that. I'm waiting for like, you know, like if John says he wants, you know, Indian food today and even hints at it a little bit, I'm like, let's do that. Let's go there. Yeah, whatever. Sounds good. Yeah, Yeah. sure. (laughs) Nines make good travel partners for that exact reason. (laughs) I mean, I do think I'm just sort of thinking about how it's different for six. I mean, this is a stupid example, but. Like I, like I like a lot of caffeine in the morning and if Graham and I are like at my husband, if we're out like at a breakfast place, I've never been before. And I'm like, how many shots are in your coffee? How many shots are in your cappuccino? And he's absolutely like, so, and then the waiter responds and then blah, 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 and I finally get what I want. And I actually know from the very beginning that I want four shots in my cappuccino. Mm, and and Graham knows, and Graham knows that I want four shops because that's how I always order it. And he's like, "Why don't you just start with that?" I don't understand why we go through this process of you asking how many standard shots are in it. Can they make another shot? When really you just want four shots, just say it. Wow, 
So what mm. is that? What is doing that? Okay. So it sounds like a pro like you enjoy the process of getting there. <laughs> Somehow I think it's too forward. Ah, okay. Like I'm like, I'm like kind of like politely inquiring, like, how does it normally work around here? And would it be too much for me to ask if you could slightly change it? Like, cause if mm-hmm. this is how if you already, what if the, if the standard is you do four shots, I don't have to ask for anything different. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, remind me what your, um, stacking is. Courtney? Um, six, three, one. Oh, uh, your instinct stacking. Oh, um, social self press sexual blind. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that's a bit of social. Yeah. (laughs) All of us are sexual blind. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm wondering if that's a bit of, yeah, yeah, it is a bit of social (laughs) coming in uh, rather than the six itself, but it kind of muddles together because six and social overlap a lot. Well, and I do think that there is something just like, just say what you want. Mm -hmm. Like, what is like, you already know what you want. Yeah. Um, And to relate even to that coffee um, example, I don't even think to question changes. I will just have the coffee, however it comes. Like, I don't even think to ask what's in it. How much is in it? Is that what I want? I just will accept it. (laughs) Okay. This only has two shots and I wanted four. I'll just, I don't know. I'll find a way to get another two somewhere down the road. But this comes well, this way, so I'm going to accept it this way. Well, I think that's super interesting when you think about like the withdrawn, the assertive, and the kind of compliance or what I call merit-based strategy for like meeting your needs of the three different types, where the nine is sort of basically like attachment in a withdrawn style is sort of like, this is good enough. Like, mm-hmm. I'll just settle yep. for this. And the assertive version of attachment is like, this is what I want. Like I'm going to, and I'm going to make it okay with, I'm going to, whatever you've got going on over there, I'll sort of, I could fix it. I will assert reality. And the mm-hmm. merit-based is like, I've got to earn this. So it's almost like I'm asking politely, I'm doing it the right way. I'm not being a jerk about it. And maybe you'll give me my four shots. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. I just assume I will not get the four shots unless it's like presented in front of me like that. Like if it comes four shots and like pleasantly surprised, but if it's just two shots and like, well, yeah, that's just, that's how it goes. That's the standard. What are you going to do about you do, it? Nancy? Like wink at them or, I would, or flirt with them or something? Uh, yeah. I would <laughs> charm them into it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I'd be like, oh my God. Like I, I really need to wake up. Like I cannot wake up in the mornings. You know what I mean? Like just, oh, look at the weather. It's so rainy. Like I need an extra <laughs> shot of it. And they'd be like, oh, <laughs> you're so funny. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, do that charming bullshit social. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's funny. Okay, let's uh, see. What do you guys think about? I liked this question. Hang on, I just looked at it and then didn't process it in my brain. Um, <laughs> yeah, what is your impression of the other attachment types in contrast to yours? So, like, Nancy, I've heard at least privately, like, in, I've heard how nine stresses you out. <laughs> I've heard how, like, the dissociation, the just like accepting whatever, this sort of like latent body um, hit. I've heard it just completely stress you out. And Nancy, just a bit with a nine, and you, who doesn't have experience with nines? What do you guys think? <laughs> um, now I have to think about it. Yeah, like what stresses you out or pisses you off, or do you think it's weird? Or 
say that could be kind of fun. Just kind of lightly roast each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, I think it, uh, the number one thing that stresses me out about like the other attachment types is the seeming willingness to like sacrifice yourself for the, um, specifically nines, right? This isn't so much sixes. Sixes in my experience, don't do this. Uh, but it's like this, this like completely being unaware of what your needs are. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, I will see that a nine needs something, but I have a, like, I I don't want to force it on them. Mm. If that makes sense, (laughs) right? Because that can also be uncomfortable. Like I get it. You know, if you do, if you're like having anxiety, but you like need to, like, I get it. I get that it's, you know, anxiety inducing if someone like asks for you sometimes, but it's like, I need you to take care of your physical needs and Mm -hmm. mental needs and like all these needs so that you can also like be alive in 10 years you know yeah oh my god you said almost verbatim what john tells me he doesn't say it so much anymore (laughs) i think he believes in my competency now (laughs) but there was a while that john was like i need you to take care of yourself i need you to drink Mm -hmm. water i need you Mm -hmm. to get enough sleep i need you to take care of yourself to last a long time and i'm my reaction from the jump was like what is wrong with i can can I care of myself just fine <laughs> just because I'm not like leaping out of bed in the morning and <laughs> drinking a gallon of water doesn't mean I don't know how to like listen you know he has some valid points but <laughs> that's we usually do that. we do have I, valid points <laughs> I I do think there's something really interesting here just because of the lines between the three um, attachment types mm-hmm. and yeah. growth and stress and integration and all of that which is, you know, we are going to make up stories about these other types that mm-hmm. keep us from basically integrating their their perspective that would sort of undo parts of our own identity. Mm. Yeah, and that so, makes sense. So like for me, for example, and this is because I've had, to, I think I've spoken about this, like I've, I've done persona work where I've had to like claim my inner nine and her name is Willow, by the way. Um, and, and initially what I had to do was sort of come up with like the worst possible version of a nine. Like what's the, what, what am I afraid of would happen to me if I ever took in that nine energy? Um, <laughs> That's interesting. So what, it, what is it? What's the worst? <laughs> well, so the worst thing is like, you're just fucking checked out. You're missing everything. Ah, right like like ah. it's like you know like the like on the back to the future where the guy's like hello mcfly like knocking on the guy's head <laughs> like that is like that is like my you know caricature of what happens with nine energy mm-hmm. is just that you've like literally fallen a, and from a six perspective that just feels so scary mm-hmm. that fuzziness and the sort of checking out like what you may miss something really important and i would never let that happen yeah. Yeah. The, for me, it's, um, it's not so much missing something important as it is missing like happiness. Like you aren't going after your own happiness hmm. as in like nines. I feel often put their happiness aside, you know, mm-hmm. to just exist. And it's like discomfort, you know, it, it takes some discomfort to get to reach that point of peak living and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a very three term. Um, yeah. And, you know, but it's worth it in my mind. And so, you know, I'm willing to 
do whatever I have to do to make sure that my nine, you know, gets that experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, well, because I-, I feel like he's not going to make it on his own for some reason, even though he's a completely competent adult. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do think that like I make up a story a little bit and I hear Nancy, you doing the same thing that like, Mm -hmm. if you're not, if you're not feeling pain, what is motivating you? Mm. (laughs) Like what motivates change if you're not in touch with what's bothering you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. You hit the nail on the head there. You have to know what's going on inside to want to do anything (laughs) about it. What you just said, but yeah. So those are the things that are scary about the nine for the three and the six. Mm -hmm. Um, What's scary about the three for the six and the nine? (laughs) Uh, Hello, the narcissism. (laughs) 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 I love the answer right as I'm drinking water. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) We don't have narcissism. We are... So perfect that we don't have narcissism. (laughs) (laughs) Three is just so difficult for me to grasp as a like practice, like a physical practice almost. And I know it's like not a body type or whatever, but like I, it's very difficult for me to locate what it would be like or what it would feel like. And even times where I have like been at three or feel, you know, more comfortable being in charge of my own image it almost doesn't, I don't, it's very, it just feels very foreign. So I think what feels scary to me about three is this inability to, (laughs) it sounds so nine, but like it's, is this inability to hide? Like, how am I going to, if people are watching me all the time, isn't that going to be exhausting that I have to be on all the time? And yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's also like, if I'm being witnessed all the time, it creates this pressure that there's no room for error. Whereas like, if no one can see me, nobody can see how I'm like doing well or doing poorly. Most importantly, no one can see how I'm doing poorly. But if everyone can see me and they see me fail, it's like, I don't know how, how do you come back from at least me going to, to three? It feels like I can't risk not being able to come back from something ever. So it feels like, like literally putting myself out on a ledge and like walking across a tightrope. And if I fall, everyone sees it. That's what it feels like for me. It's not so much the like, like the fear of like looking full of myself. It's, it's the fear of making a fool of myself. So it feels unsafe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, I will say being a three, it feels very unsafe too. So <laughs> it sounds that's not, <laughs> not a very nine perspective. That's, that's very accurate of what it's like living as a three. <laughs> I think from, I think from the six perspective, part of you know, the six, the underlying assumption is that the world is coming at us, right? And, you know, we're sort of at the mercy of the world, which is why we need to be so focused and gathering resources, gathering support, being prepared, anticipating worst case scenarios, collecting data, analyzing the grid, et cetera. It, they're really the underlying assumption is like, this is a really big, scary world and I can't face it on my own. I, I, well, I, I cannot stand up to the world on my own. And so, I think for sixes, the audacity of the three to believe that they're capable mm, is actually yeah, well, what we need, but is actually very scary for us. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, so from a, a three perspective, we have all of that, but we assume that we can handle it. 
Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Which, which, you know, often is wrong, but it could, yeah, a mix of that would be nice. Well, I think it's, it's because, I mean, that's why the judgment of narcissism and like, what do you mean? You just are so sure it's going to like work out. And what do you mean? You're like, just like, think you got this in the bag. Like, how dare you? You know, all mm-hmm. of those judgments, <laughs> like all of those judgments um, are just a way of me allow, like not taking my medicine from the three. Right. Mm. Um, right. And allow me to continue to not actually integrate that high side. So it's a total projection on my part. Um, well, I mean, and, and, and maybe there's some truth in it also. Sure. It's a yes. And kind of thing. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the nine for a second because there's what would be my medicine? Because to me, it just seems like a terrible life plan, (laughs) (laughs) but I know that's not accurate. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just sitting here and I'm like, well, there's something I could take from this. But my brain is just like, no, it's just a bad idea. <laughs> the medicine of the nine for you is, is that you actually have less agency than you think. Mm. And there's like a flow mm. of life force and whatever's happening that needs to happen that is actually not yours. It's bigger than yours. So you don't. You don't need to have an agenda in order for you to move through the world. Yep. Hate that. Good. To, you know. <laughs> That's so interesting to hear you say that. Cause I'm like, what do you mean? Nine is only medicine for everybody. Everybody needs a nap. Everyone needs a break. Everyone needs to slow down. Everyone's exhausted and it's making me tired. Everyone still out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody needs mm-hmm. a bed, a, a sofa that is a bed in their living room mm-hmm. that they can sleep on. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, like, yeah, it feels like Nancy just doesn't stop doing things. Courtney just doesn't stop thinking. Guys, just shut up. Just take a nap. <laughs> You'll feel better in the morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> We're medicine for oh, you, yes. also. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So then yeah. the six. hmm hmm So fun. So much fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Six is a little difficult because I don't, I was going to say that I don't have much fear around six, but I have a really hard time being at six. So maybe I do have some fear around it. I guess it feels like, hmm, actually, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> six, uh, the place of being in six offers me a chance to be more curious than like three or nine usually does. Hmm. So that like, that's what it offers me typically. Uh, so I, I pull very positively from my six space. Usually it hmm. does, it, it does give me some anxieties, you know, sometimes get too much going, but uh, usually it, it offers me a space to like really enjoy exploring new things with or without people. That's really cool. That's really cool. I think for me, it feels like, it feels a bit like a siphon of my energy. Like it feels a bit like I'm just going to be, I don't know, just like, like spinning and not necessarily going anywhere. 
like with three, there is a use of energy, but I'm more reticent to use my energy in that direction because I'm afraid of, you know, it's basically like fear of being seen, fear of being seen poorly. Whereas with six, it almost feels like, like my energy will be used unproductively, which is interesting to hear myself say. I'm not sure, you know, and like, of course, the positive relationship that I have to six is that it does keep me sharp and that it keeps me alert. And it reminds me that I need to like jolt myself awake in order to be able to move forward and like, look at all the things that are, you know, that need to be addressed. Um, but I think like my instinctual response to six in my, in my body is that it feels like my energy is just going to zap, like it's just going to be wrung out of me and then I'll be left useless. I do feel like as a six, um, I have envy or I, you know, like chip on my shoulder, feeling like the threes and the nines make their way sort of more smoothly through the world than we do. Um, that I kind of can't help myself, but that sharpness, that focusing on the what if, that sort of the negativity, um, the reactivity, all the things that we're doing, you know, I, I know that threes and nines suffer, but I feel like the suffering of the three and the nine is more internal, whereas yeah. the suffering for the six is, is pretty evident. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that feels right. Yeah. I will say just to piggyback off of that, I, I do think that the confidence of a six is earned, whereas the confidence of a nine and a three is almost just almost taken for granted. I, I think maybe the, like the threes is taken for granted and the nine, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe the nines is taken for granted, but there is like a, like when six gains certainty or clarity, it feels very grounded and it feels very mm-hmm. like, like I did the work and now I know that I'm sure I'm not just leaving it up to like the universe and I'm not just leaving it up to like, I can do anything. I put in the time and the hours to know that what I'm doing is the right thing to do. So there is like, yeah, there is like a showing the work of three or of, of, uh, that comes from being in a six space that when I do (laughs) move forward again into nine and then eventually into three, it does feel like I'm on a correct path because I've, I've earned it. Yeah. It's also, um, the suffering of six is a bit more visual, like from the outside, Mm. like it is more, um, tangible, but I feel like that earns them the, the, um, trust of others, right? Because if a six does come to you with like a confidence, you have seen them walk through problems like this a million times, and you're like, okay, you've got you got here um, because you're prepared, right? Nobody ever comes to me for advice. <laughs> like people don't come to me for like actual tangible advice, right? They come to me for a pep talk, but oh. I go to like sixes for advice. Yeah, that's, that's so a really great point. That is a really great point because that's I, my dad is a six, and I know that Same. I can trust his advice with anything, with anything, mm-hmm. because he's like been sort of like on the battlefield already about it and knows the correct solution. Yep, I had to figure out uh, health insurance recently, and I was like, I don't know if this is a good insurance company to go with. And I called my dad and he was like, actually, I know exactly. There's a chart mm-hmm. with a, on a website that rates all of them based on this, 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 and this. So here, let's go read it together. And I'm like, exactly. I would, yeah. I would have just been like, oh, it has a pretty logo. 
Right. 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 And I, I just would have like picked one and been like, oh, I hope this works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't have known that about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a really great thing to bring up. I remember seeing on um, on one of the group's posts, there was like some girl was typed as a six and she thought she was something else and her reasons for, or somebody's reason for just some other commenter said the yeah. reason she is not a six is because she is confident and she is self-assured and she like knows what she's doing or whatever, whatever. Yeah. And it did cause this like weird defensive reaction in me. And it was basically Nancy, exactly what you spelled out. Like there are self-assured and confident sixes. And in fact, they have the most deserved and earned confidence and self-assurance because they've like done the work to fucking get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when you do go to a six for advice, they're going to give you absolute, solid, stable, dependable information. Right. Because and they're they going to tell you if just, they can't. Yeah. Because it's not just based in like blind confidence or faith. It's because they've done it. They've tried and tested it. And that is a lot of what reactivity is, right? It's like testing what it is, especially with six. I do think that we are also like pretty committed to life not being easy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so therefore yeah. the, the path of growth <laughs> has to be hard worn, hard earned. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're going to tell you about how hard we worked for it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want you to think we got here effortlessly. <laughs> so, so you keep it real. That well, would be too easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think that that is another right that's that's part of like with the three and the nine I, I think it is sort of in some way related to attachment like you know there is like can you see how hard I'm working here you know like that part of the six um in the attachment style that maybe is not there in the three and the nine um, well and I feel like sixes probably create a lot of work for themselves right there isn't always the need to work as oh, hard 100%. as they're working but yeah. they create it Wait, say that part again. I missed that. So uh, there isn't always a need for sixes to work as hard as they do, but they make Mm -hmm. sure that they work as hard as they do so that they can earn it maybe. Well, and if if you have to like solicit 10 people's opinions and make sure they're coming along for the ride with you before you make a decision and you have to anticipate every contingency that may go wrong before you like on the way someplace. I mean, your belief that life is not easy is you have manifested that. Right. Is there also a possibility that the reason the sixes make things harder for themselves is so that people can see that it is like it's like it's like earning very thorough support. Is it something like that? Like rather than taking the easy route, like maybe a three or nine would like the three is like the skipping ahead and the path of least resistance for nine. Six is going to go in the trenches to show everyone I've done this work thoroughly. And so now I have to get your like now you will have my support because you see the whole process. I think also the six at the end of the day is is terrified. We are terrified that we are the cause of our own suffering. Hmm. And that the thing uh-huh. we fear the most, whatever bad thing is going to befall us, is actually something that we wrought as opposed to the world itself. And hmm. so some of that working very, very hard, I think, is because the six 
really wants to convince themselves and, and really wants to convince other people that if something bad happens, it was not because of me. Hmm. And so I will, yeah, I will go way overboard so that that accusation could never be lobbed. Yeah. Wow. That's hard for me to even understand. Um, It's very important to the six that suffering be external. Mm -hmm. I can always be acting defensively in response to, as opposed to, but what if it's me? What if it's the fact, what if it's me who's done something wrong? What if I've made the bad decision? That's a lot of pressure, dude. Yeah. That's why part of what's creating the inner committee and like soliciting all those points of view as so that I can blame it on someone else if it doesn't go right. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And we'll have to take responsibility for my life. So how does being a parent work then? As a six, I feel like that's a lot of decision-making by yourself. Um, I think it's a longer topic because I've done a lot of yeah, thinking that's true. about it. Yeah. Um, and I, like, I'm, I'm aware that I'm on, the only parent on this call. And although you guys have obviously have parents and have full uh, perspective on it as a, from a kid's perspective. Uh, you know, I generally feel like I was thinking about Emika um, talking about sort of the lens of attachment, kind of coloring how we understand parenting. And I do think that that is true. You know, I, I generally feel like over the last like 30 years or 25 years, there's been this real concern about like attachment between parent and child. And how do I ensure that my child is securely attached? And to me, that's a relatively new phenomenon that a parent would even use that language um, to talk about their relationship with their kid and that that would even be like a worry that would come up for them. And to me, it sort of implies sort of almost the attack that these are attachment people because attachment feels fragile. And therefore, like, that's one of the implicit assumptions of Mm -hmm. that kind of parenting philosophy. And I think for the six, for me as a parent, it's really sort of forced me to understand that, you know, I'm soliciting advice, I'm getting input, all of those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, I often confuse myself more rather than just sort of kind of going internally and and what's my intuition here? Like, can I trust that I'm seeing reality clearly? If I actually spend five minutes paying attention to my kid paying attention to what's going on, paying attention to what's going on in my body as I think about this thing versus reading a bunch of books about what I should do. Um, Can I trust that I might actually, that might actually be the better path to the, to the best decision. And that's been a whole exploration for me um, that I've, I've had to do and I continue to do as a parent. Yeah. Well, Courtney over here doing the real work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that having kids forces all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What types were each of your parents? Like, since we're all attachment types, who were we parented by? I say my both of my parents are attachment types, which was a very strange. Now knowing this language and knowing the, having this information, now looking back on, you know, my sister is also a nine, so it was two attachment children with two attachment parents. So there's just this vicious cycle of attachment that still exists. Um, anyway, what is so? What about you guys? Nancy? Uh, well, my dad's a six and my mom's an eight. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So, um, you know, as, as a child, the eight mother was great fun. 
Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> as as a teen to a young adult to I guess now fully fledged adult or whatever you want to call twenty six, uh, I see I, I am much closer to my dad now just because he seems much more human to me than uh, my very detached eight mom. <laughs> mm. Okay, so you experienced your mom as detached. Mm. Interesting. Okay, yeah, we'll get into that. Um, Courtney, what about you? My mom's a two, and my dad, I actually don't, you know, I go back and forth between three and five. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have potential double hexad parents, hexad and attachment, and attachment, attachment. <laughs> um, okay. Fun. So I guess one question I have is, um, did you notice a difference? You know, there, it's obviously hard, like eight versus six and male versus female versus dad, all that kind of stuff. But hex, hexad versus attachment, is there something you could say about that? Like looking back on your experience where you would generalize to like, that was the driving difference in terms of how they parented you? Hmm. I think uh, there's a level of self-assurance that comes with hexad that as an attachment child can be very jarring. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a sense of, I did my part. Mm. Now you do yours, which has its place in parenting for sure. Um, But I think, you know, just like any other aspect of our types can be overdone. Um, And I think it was overdone in, in my experience with my mom. And then with my dad, there was a overdoing a, I'm so unsure of how to do this right that I don't want to do it at all at times. Hmm. Interesting. And now he's coming around to, well, I already fucked up. So, (laughs) Mm. which is much easier to handle than the, I did everything I could do deal with the repercussions, right? As a, as an attachment, it's much easier to handle the, well, I done fucked up and I'm back now than it is with the kind of cool hands-off feel, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. Interesting. Do you think he was sort of following your mom's lead or do you think it was like, like, like a gender thing that was, this is how dads I, are supposed to, not supposed to be that hands-on or something? I think it had, there were lots of aspects. Um, Part of it was probably just him being unsure how to dad, you know, Uh he had two sons Uh and then a daughter and it's like, you know, how do I connect with you? Um, Uh And then there was also that just, he self-prized six wing five. And um, I think there was so, he was so unhappy with his job and he was so afraid of not providing that I think that was all he could muster was to just do that, mm-hmm. which like I get, <laughs> I can barely muster cleaning the dishes sometimes. So I get it. Um, mm-hmm. doesn't make it okay. It just, it, you know, it's, it's very relatable to me. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting at like, at, from the perspective of being a parent with an attachment type is like, what am I, what do I do when it, attachments are in conflict? And who am I attaching to, (laughs) you know? And so is it, am I attaching to my kids? Am I, am I, is that Mm -hmm. the attachment I'm trying to preserve with my parenting 
or am I actually trying to preserve attachment to my own parents or, you know, some sort of social structure, my mm-hmm. church, yeah. you know, the broader family, uh, my community. Um, because I think that ends up sort of coloring the parenting. I think the kid, uh, the, the kid who's the recipient of that can feel that. So I guess it sort of depends on which way it's going. You know, I, I can imagine that like, as uh, uh, you know, there have been at times when I've like given way too much authority to my children. Right. Mm. And have like taken their opinion, like far too seriously mm. in that sort of desire to maintain attachment or this sort of like every opinion matters that's in the system. You're in the system. So I'm going to hear your opinion. And, and so I, I'm cognizant that that's something that I've done. And I'm also sort of cognizant that, you know, it's this kind of parenting philosophy that I'm attached to. And so therefore I'm going to parent this way and I'm actually not going to see you as a child. Like maybe that's the right strategy for you, but maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. And so I can feel both of those within myself, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, and I I am so disconnected to what it must be like to have a kid and to mm-hmm. be, you know, like it's it's hard for me even to like sit here and listen to that and like imagine if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder, okay, so as I said, I am a nine, my sister is a nine, and then my mother is a nine. So there's three nines in my family. Um and my dad is a six. And just for background, they were both raised Catholic, Puerto Rican Catholic, very, very, very strict about it. Very just like to the book. So they already had a very strong external attachment in the way that they were conducting themselves, in the way that they were raising, in the way that they were raising us too. And from my, you know, hindsight is 2020 or (laughs) kind of, I guess it's just like clearing up over time. Um, but now in hindsight, I'm seeing that they were attached to my sister and I needing to get on board with their attachment. Does that make any sense? Like they needed us to follow the rules that they were setting in place because we were going to be extensions of them doing things correctly or incorrectly. So you did, so they didn't just need you to follow the rules. They needed you to then enforce the rules later on as well because sort you were of. also on board. Like you're basically yeah. a tool or an agent through which they're attached, through which they're attaching to something else. Yes. Your behavior as a at, child. Yes. My sister and I became measurements of how well they were upholding mm. their attachment to an external structure. Mm. And of course, like, we're both nine. So we just did it. <laughs> um, but it became this, yeah, it became this thing. And like for more context, my parents split up when I was, uh, can't remember now when I was like eight or nine or something like that, which caused them to, it was just like a forced individualization. And I now again, in hindsight, I could see their attachment get even stronger. Like with my mom, it became this. Now she needs us to tell her that she's doing well as a mom. You know, now her measure of like whether or not she's doing well is going to be based on our response to her. 
Does that make any sense? This is like a, it's like. Well, it's, it's sort of what I was describing earlier with my own relationship with my kids, right? Are mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. Are, is the kid, is it, is the kid the vehicle through which I attach to some structure or am I yes. actually like using parent to, parenting to attach to my child? Right. Yes. And yes. And who's running that? Mm-hmm. For a long time with, uh, with both of my parents, it was just this like, sort of like confusing whirlpool of like who where is the in a way you know in a weird way like I think that okay I'm getting ahead of myself um in the podcast we have talked about how attachment creates relationships and how attachment you know does all of that in a strange way with my family and us all being attachment we would end up in this whirlpool of like not knowing where the real relationship was because we were all so responsive to each other that there wasn't like a, a localized somebody knows what they're doing and everybody can just anchor themselves off of that. Does that make any sense? Like, like we were all just kind of floating around trying to figure it out, but using each other as reflections on how well we were doing. You know, like I can say that I was looking at my parents to give me the green light or to give me the red light on the things that I was doing. But now in hindsight, they were doing the same with me. If I was like acting up in school, they would get upset with me, not because I was like throwing my life away or something like that. Not that it was ever that bad, but they would, they would come to me because me acting up meant that they were doing poorly. You know what I mean? Like it didn't come from a self-assured place of like, Alexandra's wrong. It was Alexandra's proof that I'm doing wrong. Are you guys following? Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally following. Yeah. That um, I remember feeling, I didn't get in trouble very often, but I remember feeling that emotion come off of my dad, mm-hmm. but not off of my mom. And I, therefore, I was much more responsive to my dad because I didn't want him to feel shame. Whereas mm-hmm. anger for my mother was very acceptable. That's interesting. And that dynamic was like very present, especially. Um, especially when I was younger, like in middle school and high school, that thing of like, especially when my parents separated, it became my sister and I's job to make sure that they felt okay. You know, like it was just like, let's make sure my dad feels like a good dad. Let's make sure my mom feels like a good mom. That was, and that was how we could keep our attachment to them. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting too, like my family's pretty conventional. I'm not going to say like traditional or conservative, just like conventional. They're just, you know, doing things the way every like person should do them. Go to college, get a nice job, marry a nice person, and then, you know, retire and die. Um, (laughs) I am not necessarily doing that as far as much as I was trying to, because that's what I thought I had to do. Um, Now I'm kind of going off in my own direction. And, you know, when I first moved to New York, my parents and my sister, especially my sister, were all very like, what the fuck is she doing? She's gone crazy. My sister, especially. And we could go into the dynamics of that. But my sister, especially, was like, what is she doing? Um, But now some time has passed. And I went to see my parents not too long ago in, I don't know, mid-February or something like that. and it feels like we have a real relationship now. Like it feels like because I'm not responding to that. And I always will, like, it's not, I'm not just like healed or whatever because I'm not right. Yeah. I did it (laughs) 
because I'm not responding to them in a weird way, they're not responding to me anymore. And so we can break out of this like weird attachment family dynamic and just talk to each other now. I do think it's interesting. Like, it's almost like there's no, unless like with all the nines, the sixes, like there's no energy, right. To disrupt Mm -hmm. the attachment structure. And then it just kind of becomes stullifying and really limiting. Um, Uh And it really takes someone willing to sort of disrupt it. Like, and you can feel it disrupting the whole chain. The whole system is basically what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like yes. one, one, one person's choice to, I'm not playing this game anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's exactly how it felt. And I felt all three of my family members have a response to that. My mom got on board pretty quickly, but she did originally have a like, oh my God, did I just like fail my daughter as a parent? Is she going off and going to do this irresponsible shit? My dad had that same reaction. And um, my sister's response was to get mad at me for disrupting this sort of status attachment quote that we were all in. She's like, you're going to upset everyone. What are you doing? Like it was, it was anger towards me because of it. Yeah. But yeah. now we're all have relationships. So <laughs> good for me. So I guess. suck it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good for yeah, everyone. That's, that's really interesting because you bringing that up made me think of my family dynamic and how my brothers are a three and a six. Uh, and then my dad's a six and my mom's an eight. Um, and my brothers are the ones that kind of get pissed off at me for like kind of calling people out on their bullshit because like my three brothers is a, um, is a cop. And, um, you know, I give him, I, I don't agree with a lot of his choices. Um, and I make it pretty well known. And my sixth brother, of course, you know, hates that and, uh, hates that I'm so vocal on social media and really like it really grinds his gears. Mm. Um, and he, you know, thinks that it shows our family in a bad light. And like, you mm-hmm. know, he says all that kind of stuff. But I'd say my my cop brother and I have actually all of us have a much different dynamic than we used to that is much more truthful. However, is including my dad. However, my mom has almost lost the ability to have a relationship with me hmm. because I feel like this what she was what she expected from me as an attachment type for so long is gone. Hmm. And I no longer am wanting to attach or, you know, I still do from time to time, obviously, but um, I am no longer like, you know, reaching out constantly to attach. Mm -hmm. And so she doesn't know how to reach back out Mm any more, if that makes sense. Yeah. Or maybe even how to reckon with you as like an individualized person and not just like a subordinate. I don't know if that's inappropriate to say, but you know, I think that's completely appropriate. (laughs) Well, and I think also from, from an eight mom's perspective, you know, that, that role is about meeting material need. Mm -hmm. Um, True. And and not necessarily about provide, you know, and then when you, when you transition to being an adult child with an adult parent, what is that relationship about now? Um, It really is about these sort of fuzzier things that 
for an aide are not normally part of the relationship. Um, yeah. So what's the offering she can make to you? You right. know, it's like her perspective. Oh, like, there isn't anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, under her sort of pattern of identity. Mm, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good point. So now the relationship would just be based in, you know, just in desire and in love and just wanting a relationship, you know, then forbid for an attraction. Yeah. For a not an attachment type, a, um, a rejection type. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I think um, it's, it's so, it's just interesting how shaking, shaking up the attachment guys can strengthen attachment type attachments or attachment type relationships, but can actually really um, not weaken, but dampen an attachment to a hexat. Like it's been such a a flip-flop in my experience. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I just think that's an interesting, you know, it's like I was listening to Alexandra's description and it was sort of like, oh yeah, I can see why you need attachment children with attachment parents so they can keep their attachment going. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. the attachment Mm -hmm. child helps. But then I was listening to you, Nancy, and I was like, oh, I can see why like if you're a hexed parent, having an attachment child allows you to kind of keep your game going. Mm. Um, so I'm sort of wondering if it's hex ed children that, or as attachment children grow and change, um, that kind of force. I mean, if the idea is that like, there's the material needs of, and like the actual parenting caregiving relationship between parent and child. But if you look at it as an opportunity for growth, um, and that that's what the relationship is really about, both for the parent and for the child. Um, what's the spark that's creating that growth? Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. For me, what it feels like in all of my individual um, dynamics with like each member of my family and also as a collective, um, it really feels like like there is a sort of spell breaking in a good way like a sort of like chain breaking in a good way, because now we can reckon with each other as like individual people. And now it's not based in this like obedience and following and mirroring and, you know, all the other stuff. Like, not that that's not still necessary at times, um, but it does feel like, like I can be curious about my dad as a person and he can just display himself to me, to me as a person Rather than like, oh, I need to make sure Alexandra's doing this and this and this, because if I'm not making sure, then I'm a bad dad. So I need to make sure I'm guiding her in a way that makes me feel like I'm doing a good job. You know, that kind of dynamic, Mm -hmm. because ultimately I think with attachment parents, it's still always going to be like, am I doing a good job or not? The, am I doing a good job? is just the attachment curse in general. Yeah. And so definitely. And so just kind of breaking away from that. Now we can kind of turn that light off and just deal with each other's people. Like I'm not dictating his worth. Yeah. I'm not dictating his worth. I'm not dictating my mom's. My sister is, she's still kind of in that dynamic, but I think that me breaking it off with her in that way, that, that attachment thing, because another, this is another tangent, but another thing is my sister and I were very attached to each other, not in this Enneagrammatic, um, actually, yeah, in that way too. Um, we were very attached to to each other because we had to be a team to make sure our parents were good. Mm-hmm. Your parents getting divorced, like actually shifted the attachment to the two of you, right? 
Yes. Yes. And so me shifting off is not only, um, it's more than just me kind of doing my own thing and like letting my parents reckon with themselves, but it's leaving my sister to do extra work. All the work, all the work. Mm -hmm. And so she's had to grapple with herself like, oh, Alexandra can just not do that. You know, and I still fucking do it and she still does it. We all still fucking do it. But even introducing that, that reality has like changed things for her too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's the number one thing that pissed off my oldest brother. Who's a six. He got really mad at me for disconnecting. Cause he was like, it's your job too. And I was like, it's not my job. Yeah. 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 I mean, my sister's, my sister's nine. So she was never going to say it's your job. But I mean, <laughs> as, as happens with nine, you still feel their fucking words, even if they're not yeah. saying them. So she was definitely saying that to me. Like, you're not doing your fucking, you're not doing your job. Like, attachment is so thick, thick family. Yeah. And so that's what I was doing. I was like betraying the family, basically. Yep. Yep. And so now everyone has to, you know, all in our own individual dynamics, but now everybody has to trust that we just love each other, that we just want to be in each other's lives. And that is extremely difficult i think across the board oh, for attachment God. to trust like oh what are you gonna what you just love me for me that's especially why? if you don't know <laughs> if you don't know who they are at all exactly yeah yeah and i mean that even stems to a whole nother thing like john and i have talked about this a lot and i've talked about this with other like attachment friends in similar um dynamics but a lot of my insecurity around being loved so directly is I have spent so much time not being able to like see what is worth loving because I was so focused on how do I say this because I was so focused on matching standards set by another person okay so a more literal way to say that is like you know if John wants my hair to be pink then my hair is going to be pink and then if he doesn't do any of this to me by the way (laughs) Um, for anyone listening. Yeah. For our our Um, listeners benefit. He's not a monster. Yeah. (laughs) But the way that I've sort of, the way I've sort of patterned my whole life is like, I will see, oh, this person wants my hair to be pink. I need to be, um, I don't know. I need to have this kind of job. I need to speak in this manner of speaking. And I've been following everyone else's direction for so long that I'm not sure that me coming into my own personhood or even just acknowledging my own individuality is so new that I don't know how to trust somebody loving that because I have spent so little time with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's all, that will always be your work as an attachment type period. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Anyway, there's a Alexandra Gemini tangent there. No, I think it's, it's right. I just think that it, I think it, it, it never goes away. Yeah, it never does. I do think it's interesting. Um, my husband's an attachment type also, and one of our kids is a four and very quickly sort of disabused us of the notion that she was going to perform in a way that was going to allow us to think we're good parents. (laughs) Wow. Um, (laughs) which um (laughs) a gift and a curse which has turned out to be which has turned out to be a great gift because I've had to I still have more but I've had to let a lot of it go because of that 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I and if she if if she hadn't been a four, we it would have that mirage. We could have that illusion. We could have kept going mm, much yep. long much longer. <laughs> I, so I, you hexad kids I, stress out your attachment parents. <laughs> yeah, it's only going to help them. <laughs> it's only going to help them. <laughs> Only good things can happen. <laughs> I do mean that, that very sincerely. I really, yeah. Oh, I, you know, I was, I was thinking about it with my parents and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just more aware that I had, I, and I do think that my dad's a three, I guess I've been, he did some things recently that made me rethink that. But if we just go with the fact that I, my mom's a two and he's a three, I, I just be, remember more feeling the image um, orientation more than the hexad versus attachment and feeling that very acutely mm-hmm. um, as a, as a child and feeling frustrated and unseen by that. And, you know, with my mom as a two, it did feel, feel very much about sort of her own image. It felt with for both of them about their own image, I guess, maybe a little bit more with my dad, sort of like a more sort of, this is what families look like. Um, or sort of like this is kind of like the general idealized notion of like what good kids look like, as opposed to my mom. It was much more specific, like, but this is my this is what I want to look like. And I need you to act a certain way so that I can continue to sort of do my two thing. Mm-hmm. I uh I have a lot, a lot of reasons that I don't want to have kids. Um I could write a paper on it. But one of my larger reasons is I'm acutely aware of how important other people's appearance who are with me is. And I don't want to put that on a kid. Like I am, I am mm, I see what you're saying. extremely aware of that. And I just would, I, I, in times of stress, it comes out still. And I'm like, I never want to put that on a child. Like, mm. dear God, <laughs> that it, to me, that's like a cardinal sin of a parent um, is to put that expectation on a kid. But, you know, that's just my personal fear uh, as a three. So parents who are threes, more power to them because I could never. So as um, all of us being attachment types, what do you feel like you needed from your parents? Like I, my mind's pretty clear. My my mind's a pretty quick and easy answer. Like I needed my parents to redirect my inquiries back to me. And it's kind of a tall task because as a nine, I did not have a lot of direct inquiries. I was just very, very passively following any direction. And I mean, very indirect direction. Like they didn't have to tell me to do something before I knew that's what they wanted me to do. And I was already on my way to do it. It was just the easiest way to just like know that what I was doing was the right thing to do. Um, so it's a tall task in that sense, but I do think that I, uh, you know, who knows what would have changed, but I do think that what I needed from my parents is direct. Like, what do you want to do? What do you think about it? What do you do? What you want to do? And like, almost like create an attachment to making them proud of me because I was following my own choices. That's a good answer. I think, um, I think my parents actually did that pretty well uh, with my mom being an eight. Uh, (laughs) There was an attachment to uh, do, you know, follow your own path because if you follow anyone else's, that's bullshit. 
I think uh, there something that would have helped me a lot is creating uh, a stronger space to experience to hold emotions in to like a, a safe space to experience emotions in because I think uh, my family created a lot of judgment around experiencing emotions hmm. um, and the only emotions that were ever like shown in the house were kind of anger so mm-hmm. it's like if you know that was the only one allowed um so i think you know there it, as a as a person who experienced a lot of depression i think it would have been very helpful to know that you know there was a place where i could process that so that would have helped mm-hmm. I yeah. and those are both good answers um I have a kid, I think, is a three. Um, and I also, I try really hard to get her to not be focused on, like, failure. Mm. And and just doing something because it's fun. Mm. It's so mm-hmm. good. Um, and she doesn't have to be good at it. That's not, <laughs> that's not why you do something, necessarily. And I think the emotions thing is really important. Um, and I see in myself also the need for... Uh, greater self-direction, um, greater sort of return to, well, what do you think is the right thing to do? You know, I'm really sympathetic as a parent, like, like how many times you just sort of default to like, you're going to do this. Cause I said, so, you know, mm, yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think it's interesting to sort of like continue to, I don't actually think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I think that maybe the caveat is, and you can disagree in fact, I encourage you to disagree, but it still means we still have to do it this way. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah like, that's, you know. that's, that is a very cool thing that I've seen parents do. Um, I'm on parenting TikTok for some reason. I don't know why, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of mom shit on my TikTok. Um, that's interesting. Probably because, actually. yeah, well, I know. Well, probably because I find their parenting tactics so interesting. I'm like, oh, that is so cool. Um, because they like have these conversations with their kids where they actually value their kids' input. And it might not, it doesn't mean that they necessarily do what the kid wants to do, but they have like full conversations with their child. And I'm like, I was never treated like that like if if I had opinions my opinions were not to be heard Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so I think it's so cool that parents are like oh you have an opinion let's talk about your opinion you know it might be wrong but (laughs) you're allowed to have it and I'm like that is so cool because I didn't understand how to even like know what my opinion was until Mm -hmm. I was 21 or 22 and that really like set me back so yeah, I think yeah. that's really dope. That is really cool. So something that came up for me, um, so Courtney, when you were saying the like because I said so thing, mm-hmm. it's interesting that I, like as a nine, I follow directions. So such I follow such passive, passive, subtle, like almost indiscernible or like like imperceptible direction so quickly and easily. However, I have always, always had a really strong anger response to anyone to, well, it was just my parents, but to my parents saying, because I said so that's, I'm, mm-hmm. I i do not know how to like grapple with that, but it's almost like I will, it's almost hypocritical because when my parent, when my, when my parent, I guess she's my parent. 
um, <laughs> when my mom would say, you know, because sometimes I would push back a little bit and be like, but why? But why? You know, that annoying thing. Um, and eventually she would get frustrated because I said so. And I would get really angry about that. What do you, that's horrible. That's a dumb thing to say. That's, it means you lost the argument and I'm supposed to be able to go do this. You're not being fair. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a bad response to that. However, if that, if that was never directly stated to me, I would have done whatever she said. Mm, I don't know. It's just something to throw out there. Like, I don't know what to do with that information, but I, I that was interesting that that came up. Like being directly told something always like brings this like strong stubborn nine thing out. But if everything is subtle, I will follow fucking whatever. Mm, I relate to that. Yeah. I relate to that big time. If someone, yeah. if someone just gives me like directive. Yeah. I will. I have a real issue with um, authority. Yeah. <laughs> Authoritative authority really pisses me off. Yeah, me too. Like instantly. <laughs> However, if you're just like, oh well, I would really like it if you did maybe this over here. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like if my mom had redirected me and been like, no, we're gonna go do this instead, I would have been like, Oh yeah, we're gonna go do this instead. But instead <laughs> it was no, because I said so. And I'm like, but that's dumb. What do you mean because you said so? This is just like a what a dead end and it's just gonna end there. Like there's no I don't know, it was just like too direct. Maybe it was because she's also attachment to so to feel her get really solid about something was like, whoa, what the fuck? You're that's against the rules. This is all supposed to be subtle. <laughs> I don't Maybe. know. Yeah, interesting. It's strange. Um, should we move on? Okay, grounding practices. Okay. <laughs> right. Do you want to even like kind of intro that a little bit, Courtney? I think we've all sort of spoken in various ways of like, how do you find yourself when you're in the swirl of attachment? Um, mm-hmm. And how do you sort of even like discern, you know, what is you versus all the sort of incoming? And I think it'll be interesting to hear what um, Alexandra says. I I have a feeling Nancy and I will both say like being alone is very helpful. Um, And then for me, you know, I have a, I have some pretty specific questions and this would be interesting to ask you guys, you know, that are really all about basically support. And, Hmm. you know, if I'm feeling, you know, if I can, you know, if I can feel sort of fear in my body as I'm making a decision or I'm trying to think about what I want, you know, getting clear on, do I feel like, what am I, what's, what am I scared of? And if there's a piece of it, just sort of like uh, getting, like, am I scared of losing someone's support or losing someone no longer being on my team or whatever that word would be like recognizing that that's what's informing the equation. And then sort of like, once I recognize that, then being able to say, let's just assume that that's never going to happen. Like, let's assume you can, that person is not going anywhere. Mm. Um, Then if I can guarantee that to myself, what would this look like? What would I do then? Mm. Um, And so that's been a very helpful thing for me. Um, And similarly, this idea that like, I might have this generalized fear of lack of support or like losing someone. But it's actually not very, it's, it's very generalized. Like it's actually not anything about that person. And so then I asked myself questions like, well, how would I know that I, this person's with me? Like how, what would full support look like for me where I would never have to be worried about it? 
And that often makes me realize that I have no definition for it because it's mm. like this end, it's this endless sort of yeah. never ending, you know, the ball just keeps like the goalposts just get kicked like five yards down every time right. I think I'm there. And so therefore kind of realizing that the idea that like whatever decision or desire that I'm trying to work through, like it will never solve this issue for me, helps me sort of like, again, separate out. Can If I can sort of get the support issue away from what's the real issue, what do I think? Um, and I know support is a, like a very big, I know you guys would use different language in terms of like, what's the, what the fear of loss of attachment? What does that feel like to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then how to work with that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's um, definitely how I ground myself as well. It's very similar. I um, I usually think, okay, well, if I fail at this, what's that going to look like? And because I'm self-pres, my main worry is not being comfortable, not being financially comfortable, and not being able to live the life that I want at that time. But I'm lucky enough to have like such a support system that that's not realistic, right? I'm never going to be homeless. Um, I'm, you know, definitely very privileged in that sense. I have a safety net. So it allows me to kind of release that, okay, well, you know, I have to do this for the sake of money, fear, and explore without capitalism. (laughs) Sure, yeah kind of overshadowing everything. Um, And then it's just my own disappointment in myself that I fear, which is like, I mean, that sucks, but it's, it's a bit more manageable than everything else. I'm trying to think about even where to begin with this question, because when I am attached to something it's not about like, it doesn't feel like, oh, this is just like a person or like a thing I want to be around. It's like my down to like the cells are oriented around this person. Me being a social type, it's just always going to be a person. Um, my cells are ori- oriented around this person. And so like the story I tell myself is that I will just completely lose who I am or just like not sounds dramatic and I don't like mean it to, I guess I do mean it to be, I, I don't know, whatever. It just like feels like I won't exist anymore without that orientation. And so a lot of the drivers to keep that attachment going is based on this fear of like, if I lose what I'm anchored to, then what am I anchored to? I'm just going to be floating off. And I don't, I don't know how to like crystal myself into a solid form without that. Mm. Okay. So I don't know if this is directly answering the question or not, but these are just the things that come up. Um, Getting space away from that attachment is very good for me. Very good for me. Um, Just in like a recent example, uh, John was just in Egypt for a little over three weeks. And that was the longest that we've been apart since we've been together, which is pretty impressive considering the first year we lived in different states. (laughs) Nevertheless, I had some... I had anxiety approaching that trip because I was like, oh my God, we're going to be apart for this long. You know, not that I thought it was like, it's not that long. Like it is, but it's not. Um, Anyway, I had a lot of anxiety around that because, okay, I don't know how meta this is, 
but I was worried that I was going to be just like anxious the whole time that he was gone. I was worried that you wouldn't be able to exist without him. Yeah. I was worried that like, because my anchor was not around me, that I was just going to be like frazzled and lost and just like floating around, just like not knowing what to do. And, And so like a thing that was like very pleasantly surprising about that and very reassuring to me was that being apart and being like sort of like forcing that attachment, that literal cell energetic, like immediate body to body attachment away from me. Um, created this new orientation where I could still feel that we were reaching to each other, not out of like fear or out of nerves or out of this like need to reinforce like my own existence based on this other person. Um, But it was based out of love and it was based out of attraction and it's based out of like just wanting to reach out to each other. Um, Again, I'm not sure if this is answering the question (laughs) directly, but that time apart was... That time apart was really good for me because it did remind me of like, oh, this is what I'm like when I'm alone. This is what I'm like when I'm like, and I don't mean like not in a relationship, but I mean, literally when I'm spending time by myself, oh, I like this, you know? So even just the reminder of, oh, I enjoy myself on my own is very grounding for me to remember because that takes the threat of like losing the attachment away a little bit because I won't like lose myself. Is that making sense? I I feel like there's maybe a more elegant way I could have put that, but like time alone is not just important for me to just like as a withdrawn type getting overwhelmed easily or whatever. It's also important to just remember that I enjoy myself on my own so that if this like horrible thing was to ever happen, I could still exist you know not just like be happy you know there's like the exist or there's like the emotion we're not talking about emotions or anything like that but it's just like i will still exist and know that i exist outside of that that makes total sense that's i think uh, a i would like to add on to my answer with that is that there is a, a fear that i um i will no longer like be able to sit with myself Mm-hmm. And I think proving to yourself that you can is a big step, right? Having something in some form, some amount of time where you can kind of timestamp it and be like, see, I did it. There's like, there's a, an ability to kind of calm down about like oh, the what ifs. Yeah. It's just like, a, for me, it feels like, oh, I enjoy my own company. So I won't, so I'm good. Yeah. I do think that there is something, I think that's true for all the attachment types around sort of, you know, like who would I, who will I be with whatever I'm attached to? If I, if, if not the thing I'm attached, thing or person I'm attached to, like what happens to my identity when this attachment is mm-hmm. no longer here? Right. And so like, that's the fear we're all sort of talking about. And, and so having kind of like, as you said, like manageable goals or places where you play around with that. Like one thing I was interested in what you said, Alexandra, and I was sort of thinking about it within myself. Like I also do a lot of body work around like literally feeling support in the body. Mm. That's cool. Um, like art, like all the different arches, foot, pelvic, diaphragm, palate, breath as a support structure. You know, this idea that like I, all the support I need is actually sort of like an internal thing. And I can always source support for myself. Um, 
And I was curious, sort of that, like what you're describing, it feels like a body sense of like, can I feel myself? Yes. Yes, totally. What um, comes to mind? I, I oh, was curious ahead. if you had any practices around how do I feel myself? Well, um, but I will say that what immediately comes to mind is, I don't even know how many years ago this was now, but this was after uh, a breakup, just this really bad relationship. It was absolutely, it was attachment, but it was a very bad negative attachment, just, just constant tension, whatever, whatever. Anyway, we break up, he's finally out, um, all of this stuff. And I remember there was like the original adrenaline of just like the relationship being done and that kind of feeling exciting and, you know, new and all of that. But once I got kind of used to that, there was, I did have like a physical anxiety and I found that I got, re- I got really into yoga after that. Um, I got really into yoga and like more than I had ever, I'm, I'm just like a very sedentary person. I don't move a lot. <laughs> I don't want to. Um, and so I remember it being surprising to me that I was suddenly wanting to move and like be on a mat for sometimes hours, almost every day, just like feeling myself. And I think in hindsight, that's what that was. It was just me feeling like ache and me feeling um, effort and me feeling just like my physical body reminding me that like, oh, I'm here. I'm, I exist. Look at what I'm doing. I'm carrying my own body weight. I'm getting, I can feel myself literally getting stronger in existence. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, yeah, that was really good for me. That is probably something I should regularly practice, not yoga specifically, but some sort of like somatic grounding like that. Does anything come to mind for you like that, Nancy? Nothing comes to mind immediately aside from like, so mine, mine is modeled with like uh, mental illness. So it's a little bit hard for me to know what's grounding me in my typing and what's grounding me in my mental stability. I think I find a lot of solace in doing things that I enjoy without telling anyone about them. Mm. Um, And it's very hard for me, but I find that when I do that, I get to uh, be the most me so, um, you know, like whether it's hiking alone or, um, you know, going climbing alone or doing that kind of stuff that I find really, truly enjoyable without posting about it, without telling anyone, without calling anyone on the way and just existing with myself really kind of opens up the air around me to my own existence. Mm. <laughs> And do you, do you feel like a sense of kind of like intrinsic value or purposefulness? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, (coughs) it's, it's like a, it's like a connection to being alive with just, just the sole purpose of being alive. No outcome, just isness, just sort of. Mm -hmm. Just is just being and just ising. Yeah, I think that's a good practice for any three. Uh, I think it's always a great practice for threes to find something that they somewhat enjoy um, and not telling anyone about it. Yeah, I love that. 
I think that's really Me good too. for an image type. Mm-hmm. Me too. And it I proves to you good. what you actually like too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Find it. Yeah, that's really good. Well, just I feel like it kind of echoes the um I guess not echoes. It's a way to like be your own eyes without being distracted by someone else's. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of view yourself through your own, yeah, through your own eyes. Because I feel like, you know, I have three fixed, and so it's not as loud as it would be for a three core, but I kind of get the sense that three has a very easy way of seeing themselves through other people's eyes. Without knowing it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so automatic, right? That it's like you mm-hmm. can't turn it off. And you don't know when it's happening. I thought that was a really beautiful place to end. I thought that yeah. was nice. That's good. That was a good suggestion, Courtney. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, um, that was great. And uh, Alexandra, you should lead more podcasts. <laughs> lead more podcasts. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for encouraging my line to three. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm always here for it. <laughs> okay, right, I'm going to go to bed now. <laughs> I think it's worth it to do a blind spot call at some point. Yeah. I do think that would be a good call between us. Yeah. Okay. That'd so we'll fun. all do our homework. We'll do our microphone sound homework so that we don't stress Amica out. And then we'll yeah. do that at some point too. I really want them to do a social hexet call. Like find some. Oh, social yeah. That'd be interesting. Types. That would be interesting. Yeah, that would be interesting. And yeah. we could even do like an instinct call with a bunch of other stackings because Beth, you know, Emika's Beth is a sexual six and she still has that attachment thing. You know, like I, as a sexual blind, I guess I was under the impression that like, oh, sexual types know who they're attracted to. But Beth still has a history of pairing herself off with people she was not that attracted to just based on attachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that there's, could be a of, sleep, there's a lot of sleeping with or sleeping with or having relationships with both, both. Like as a sexual type, it was sexual attention that she would get to people, get from people. Mm-hmm. Um, but as an attachment type, it was like if somebody's giving me attention, then they must be correct, and I need to oblige. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, episode me. potentials in our little threesome. Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. Gonna take it over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a, just a Bermuda podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, okay. that was nice, guys. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it Thanks. was. It's <laughs> nice talking. Bye. Bye. Thank you.